Venture capital interest in ag tech has been tremendous in recent years. But what impact are we seeing on agricultural challenges like environmental degradation, labor, and farmer profitability? I don't think it's controversial to recognize that VC as a business model was not designed for agriculture, and there are characteristics that don't lend themselves particularly well to the agricultural setting. Hannah Sr. is an ag entrepreneur who set out to explore how the investment models we use affect the outcomes we see. She says venture capital plays a vital role, but there's also room for other innovative approaches to solve our industry's complex problems. What we do know is that if we continue with what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. And actually, it would be good to get more diversity into the kind of companies that are being backed, the kind of solutions that are being brought to market with greater pace. If we're going to talk about the potential for technology to positively impact the future of agriculture, this is an essential part of that conversation. I believe that there is an opportunity for us to change the way that we do entrepreneurship so that it has wider benefits over the long term. Hannah Senior of Innovating Ag Tech joins me on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, you may or may not realize this, but a lot of the time, uh, the reason you're hearing a topic being discussed on this podcast is because I'm personally wrestling with it or, or trying to understand it. And today's episode certainly fits that description. Uh, as cliche as this might sound, I'm genuinely interested in how innovative ideas can positively impact the future of the egg industry and our food system as a whole. And I'm really not all that interested in how much investment a company can raise or at what multiple they can exit or who makes money from that whole circus. Of course, we talk about that stuff because it does have an influence on how these innovative ideas get rolled out and whether or not they're successful but it's really not my particular focus. What I want to know is, what impact is this having? And in order to kind of cut through the clutter to answer that question, we have to take an objective look at how we're funding and how we're supporting innovative ideas. And that's exactly what today's guest, Hannah Sr., did in her fantastic documentary podcast called Innovating Ag Tech. I'm going to share more on that in a moment, but first, I'd like to take a minute to thank our presenting sponsor for this quarter, Merck Animal Health Ventures. Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website, which I will make sure is in the show notes. And make sure you stick around to the end of the episode because you're going to hear a profile from one of their portfolio companies who also happens to be a former podcast guest of this podcast, Soma Detect. Thanks so much to Merck Animal Health Ventures for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, well, now to today's featured guest. Hannah Sr. grew up in a farming community, but followed her career into corporate life, working with multinational companies 
including five years with the retailer Tesco. She completed an MBA at Stanford University before returning to the UK and to agriculture when she acquired PBS International. No, not the public broadcasting system. Uh, PBS International being the Pollination Bag Specialists, which is a company that makes products for plant breeders and seed producers around the world. She describes her professional expertise as a stool with three legs, one of them being agricultural technology, another one being entrepreneurship, and a third being plant breeding. Hannah holds board and advisory positions with several ag tech companies, including Crop Health and Protection, the UK's government-backed Agritech Center for Crops, and is vice president of the National Association of Plant Breeders. She's the host of two podcasts, Plant Breeding Stories, which interviews a diverse range of people in and around plant breeding, and Innovating Ag Tech, which is an audio documentary about how to better align interests in ag tech entrepreneurship between the environment, farmers, entrepreneurs, and investors. I first connected with Hannah when she was putting together this Innovating Ag Tech documentary-style podcast, and I was very eager to both listen to the six-part series and share some of her takeaways and perspectives with you here today. I'm going to drop you into the conversation where Hannah is talking about how she ended up acquiring PBS International. When I left Stanford after my MBA, my parents were reaching that point of needing to retire, but their business was very dependent on them. So I famously said I would help them to find an exit, but not be that exit. Um, and so I came back and I helped them out. Um, I had in mind that I would do a search fund, but this was 2007 going into 2008. So there was the financial crisis, and that wasn't a great time to be raising a search fund. But I could see that PBS was a great business. It had loads of opportunity in it, and I found it really interesting. And so I negotiated to acquire the business from them in a, in a commercial fashion. And for the last 10, 12 years, that's been my my baby. That's great. And I, I'm curious, well, first of all, I think one interesting thing for a lot of the audience might be explaining what a search fund is and what was driving you in that direction. And then I want to talk more about the company. Yeah. So a search fund is a means of being entrepreneurial to acquire and develop a business that you haven't necessarily started from scratch. So there are lots of businesses out there where the owners are looking to sell, perhaps because of retirement or perhaps because of some other reason. And there is a need to find somebody to take that business and develop it further. So the search fund is you find a group of investors who are willing to put money in to fund you to go out and look for a business to acquire. So they're backing you as an individual, you as an entrepreneur to go out and find that opportunity and develop it. So they have the option to then invest in the company once it's been acquired. Gotcha. And so, yeah, you were thinking about doing this, about going and kind of, you know, raising some money from investors to go out and find a business to acquire. And at the time you're thinking about doing this, your parents had this company that they were looking to exit and you were just going to help them exit while running the search fund and kind of like everything sort of came full circle. Is that right? Precisely. Yeah. So it's funny how life goes like that. You don't always see things coming. I, I didn't anticipate being back in the family business, but that's the way it worked out. Yeah. And who are your customers? Walk us through like what problem you're solving and for who with this company? Our customers fall into a couple of different camps. So 
as I mentioned, they're seed producers or they're plant breeders. So they could be plant breeders in universities or research organizations. They could be commercial um, organizations, the big agribusiness plant breeding organizations, and pretty much everything in between. But we tend to focus on certain crop areas. So we do a lot of work in palms of one sort or another, grasses, forestry, They're people who are trying to develop new varieties of plants, maybe for disease resistance or for higher yield. But often there's some particular challenge, like the pollen is transmitted in the wind. So take grass breeding, for example. If you're trying to breed for disease resistance in a particular type of grass, but foreign pollen is contaminating the genetics because it's blowing in the wind and fertilizing those flowers, then you've lost control of your breeding program. So by using our products, you can keep control of the genetics, which improves the pace at which you can do your development. The other issue that sometimes happens is not just contamination, but also the process of doing that control then causes downstream issues like disease in the plants, or you lose a lot of your seed set. And so that's where the technology around the fabrics comes in because we have the technical understanding to be able to work out, well, you need a bit more breathability. How do we go about doing that without allowing the pollen in? How do we let more light in, but without it overheating? So those kinds of trade-offs are the things that by using different polymers and different manufacturing techniques, we can develop different products that will meet a particular need. I mean, the range of needs is huge. So we have I don't know, Arctic poppy breeding at one end of the spectrum and coconut breeding at the other end of the spectrum. It's really diverse. We cover a massive range of crops and geographies. It's so interesting because it's one of those specialty, you know, solutions that most people don't know exist. And there's so many, you know, businesses out there that are great businesses like this that have a great market, great product. And as we're going to talk about later, maybe don't fit a venture capital type model, but are wonderful businesses, you know, that need to exist. Uh, But let's talk about innovating ag tech. Take us back to the beginning of how that started. What was the guiding question that you wanted to answer? And why did you choose a podcast to answer it? Well, I mentioned that I would find myself out in the field visiting my customers. And I would look at what was going on and think, gosh, there's scope for that being made more efficient or this technology being applied to this setting. So I was aware very early on that there was a huge opportunity for bringing technologies that are quite well established in other fields into agriculture. And so for quite a long time now, I've been involved in how do we get more technology into agriculture because of my interest specifically using entrepreneurship as a means of achieving that. But I was also aware that the UK had a less developed um, ag tech entrepreneurial ecosystem than some other parts of the world. So I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical and go and look at what was going on elsewhere in the world and think, what can we learn from that? Quite quickly, I decided I was asking the wrong question. (laughs) That wasn't the key question. What was more important really was to think about how we align interests between the investor, the entrepreneur, the farmer or the grower, and the environment specifically. And that became the core theme. And the reason for going with the podcast format, partly it was COVID, couldn't travel in the way that I'd originally planned, but also because it has this global reach that we were just discussing. Although the specifics in each 
context are different. A lot of the themes are very consistent across different parts of the world. And I thought it would be interesting to pull together perspectives from people with experience in different countries, but then also to try and draw out the common threads which apply across different regions and different geographies and different cropping systems and so on. And was there one specific experience or interview that led you to this conclusion that you were asking the wrong question and that aligning interest really was, you know, what you needed to dig deeper into? I think it was more of a a slow joining of the dots. And one of the things that this exercise does is to cover a lot of different ground, a lot of different threads. I had the sense that Everybody is trying to do the right thing, but somehow all the pieces aren't connecting up to deliver what overall we would like to achieve. So we know that agriculture is really damaging for the environment. You know, feeding nine billion people is going to do a lot of damage to the environment. We know that we want to do better. And yet somehow we're not getting there as quickly as we would like. Same with labor shortages and labor relation issues. And same with farmer profitability as well. We know that things aren't working out in a way that makes a lot of farming businesses sustainable for the long term. So one of the insights that I I realized as I was going through this is that there is this sense of extraction happening all the way along those interests that I was thinking about aligning. Now, the currency of that extraction is different, but the essence is the same, which is that the transaction is going more in one direction than the other. So farming extracts an environmental toll, be it biodiversity or water or greenhouse gases. That's the nature of feeding 8 billion plus people. Entrepreneurs, when they're developing their products and trialing them, extract from farmers and growers. They extract goodwill, trials, which then have risk implications, feedback, time. It's freely given, but the risks of those trials are often asymmetrical. So you know, and it's, and it's often not reflected in the financial upside, which might then result if that product or service is successful. And investors extract from the entrepreneurs because the entrepreneurs can't diversify their efforts in the way that the investors can diversify across a portfolio. And we know that entrepreneurs on average have greater relationship breakdown, mental health issues, actually make less money on average over the course of their careers than non-entrepreneurs. You know, we only hear about the successful entrepreneurs, but it's not a risk-free path. So this sense of everybody's extracting from somebody else, trying to do the right thing by their job and their position. But how do we think about that as being more regenerative? How do you put back in or give back in a way that that system becomes more sustainable is a big question. But it feels at times a little bit like, um, do you know that proverb with the, I think it's an Indian proverb where the blind people are feeling an elephant and they're all feeling different parts. One person's feeling the tusk, one person's feeling the side, one person's feeling the leg. And they've all got different views and very firm convictions about what an elephant is based on the bit they're feeling because they can't see the whole. And it sometimes feels like that. Everybody has their very firm views based on the bit that they're immersed in. But to try and join up some of those dots and and make a bigger picture might be an interesting exercise. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you said this, but I think you, you definitely alluded to it, if not said it, which is technology is probably part of the solution, but it's probably not the whole solution. So, so this 
aligning interests probably needs to go beyond just ag tech, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so actually, I took those three examples, environment, labor, and farmer profitability. And in all of those cases, technology can be some, but not all. And actually, the history of technology is littered with technologies that can be used for good or can be used to make problems worse. So part of this reason for trying to join all the dots is to say, just technology in its own isn't sufficient. You have to think about what the second and third order impacts are and and how that influences communities or how it influences farm business as a whole, how it influences investor priorities. All of those things connect up to result in what we see. It's not always a simple problem to solve. Right. Yeah. And I I think that speaks a little bit to part of what you talked about in the series is, is capital. And so in the venture capital game, it's kind of like if we align the right capital with the right technology, then you know progress will be made. And I th- I think one thing that struck me from listening to Innovating Ag Tech is that that's a way oversimplified version of actual progress when it comes to food system change. Yes. So I don't think it's controversial to recognize that VC as a business model was not designed for agriculture, and there are characteristics that don't lend themselves particularly well to the agricultural setting. And so what we've ended up with is because VC is the dominant method in mindset and in dollars that's put behind a lot of startups, what we've kind of ended up with is that rather than having the investment models working with the characteristics of agriculture, we have ag tech companies trying to morph to meet the needs of the VC business model. And what I wanted to try and do is to say, well, if we think about building businesses that solve problems, how do we think about financing those so that then those businesses can grow and develop into what they need to be, which might involve taking on venture capital or large sums of money for rapid growth, but it doesn't have to be. To be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with VC. It's not that it's it's a bad model or it shouldn't be used. It's that it's a bit like having one tool and then trying to work out how you can solve every problem with that one tool. Whereas I'm suggesting if we had a wider range of methods of investing in startups that need capital to develop and grow, then we would see a wider range of solutions coming to market and developing over time. Right. Which leads to the the next logical question, which is kind of a parallel journey you and I have both been on, which is, okay, well, if VC isn't the fit for a vast majority of companies, what is the right fit? Is your only other chance kind of loans at the local farm credit? You know, what's sort of in between um, those two things? And, And you came up with some some interesting ideas, I think, in the course of your work. Can you uh, maybe share what you found that that might be interesting alternatives to venture capital? Yeah, so the, there are alternatives. Interestingly, for a sector um, risk capital provision, investing in innovative businesses, I was quite surprised how hard it was to find innovative models of actual investing. So it was harder than I thought it might be. But I did come up with some solutions. So some of them are quite well known, as you described, you know, going to get a loan or find a single or a handful of wealthy investors who are willing to put capital in directly. But there are more models emerging over time. So crowdfunding is one. And I know you've had 
other guests who've talked about crowdfunding in the past, which is a method of many investors putting in small sums of money as opposed to a small number of investors putting in large sums of money. Now, that has the advantage of allowing, for example, potential customers or members of the public who have an interest in a particular technology to back an organization and to demonstrate their interest for and their enthusiasm for a particular solution. Um, So there's some quite interesting things about that. Probably it's not suited to raising really large sums of money, but it's an interesting addition to the overall picture. There's also some methods which I talk about of moving between debt and equity. You know, one of the things about agriculture is that it's often quite capital intensive and infrastructure intensive, and that doesn't lend itself well to equity funding in many cases. But there are two methods of moving between debt and equity, which I highlighted. One is an idea called convertible revenue-based finance. So I'll start with that. It's possible in all businesses, many businesses, to raise a loan using your revenues as collateral. So revenue-based finance in itself isn't particularly novel. What's interesting about this is that if your investors have an appetite for risk, then that model could be extended to earlier stage companies who are revenue generating, but are at an earlier, riskier stage. But with certain structured caveats in so that if they go on to raise a further round of investment later, perhaps because they've developed a new product, they want to expand into a new market, that could convert into an equity stake. So whereas it starts as being a loan with repayment terms structured in a way that the profitability or the growth of the business can keep it affordable, it could convert to an equity stake under certain circumstances, such as we want to go and do another raise in order to grow faster. So I think that's one interesting opportunity. Another interesting opportunity is this idea, which in effect goes the other way, redeemable equity. So it starts as an equity stake, but under certain circumstances written into the agreement from the start is an arrangement that allows the founders or the company to buy back that equity. Now that has benefits for agriculture, for example, because it means that you don't need to depend on a big exit in the way that the venture capital model does. You don't need to sell the company or IPO in order to get a return because you've structured in when that return will happen. It's also been used sometimes because founders might want to buy back that equity in order to share it with employees. So sometimes it's used as a sort of um, method of having a more broad-based employee ownership kind of structure in businesses. But again, it's not essential for it to convert. It's just giving that optionality, which then works well with the longer timeframes that we see in agriculture. It's very interesting. So in that, the convertible equity uh, arrangement, there would just be like a predetermined return on that investment of saying like, hey, I want to make X multiple on my invested and you could buy it back You know, at that point. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So to just take a step back for a moment, the way that venture capital works is that it's a portfolio approach. There's multiple investments across several companies. And the expectation is baked in that most of those companies aren't going to deliver a return at all. Some will deliver a modest return. But then really, the overall economics of the fund are generated by there being just a very small number of outsized wins. So this whole focus on, you know, trying to hit a home run, the really big 
10x or bigger returns, which are then going to cover all of the companies that aren't so successful. And I was asking the question, well, why does it have to be like that? Couldn't you have smaller returns, but across a a larger proportion of the portfolio? And I have to say, I quite often got the, oh, you don't understand, (laughs) which was quite frustrating because I did understand. I just thought it was a legitimate question to ask. Now, this kind of thing, like the redeemable equity, allows you to have that sort of outcome. So you structure it up in such a way that you will get a return on your investment. It could be because you get a really big exit, or it could be because it gets paid back at certain times with a return that the investor considers acceptable. So you get a smaller average return per successful investment, but collectively cash on cash, you get returns that are comparable to, or sometimes even better than those that you would see with the traditional VC structuring. Yeah. And part of the problem I run into, because I'm always looking to like, where's the story of success with this alternative funding models? And a lot of them are so new equity crowdfunding, perfect example that I don't know if there's been a successful exit of an equity crowdfunded ag tech company yet. We might just be too early for that. Do you know? No, I don't know of a successful exit on that yet. And actually, I suppose crowdfunding, again, it's tends to be equity crowdfunding. I suppose it could be debt crowdfunding under certain circumstances, but it tends to be equity funding. But I think it is very new. What we're seeing with some of these more flexible methods of investing is that they're being done in pockets. So it might be, I don't know, um, urban regeneration in a particular local environment, or it might be one particular sector in in one particular geography. So there are data points coming out, but they tend to be very dispersed, very disparate. And I think one of the things that's happening slowly, slowly over time is that as people who are experimenting with these different models in different locations are starting to build up the evidence and starting to connect up with others who are experimenting, we're starting to build some momentum towards here is some evidence. These things can work. It builds a bit of confidence. And I think that's one of the things that interested me about sharing it with the ag tech community is that we could be doing some of this experimentation and trying with different methods to build up that evidence that this is a way of, of financing companies that have something to offer, which may never make a unicorn status or may never grow to the scale that they can exit in a seven or 10 year time period, but still have a lot to offer. Yeah, no, I, I think it's such a compelling idea to me, at least, because I do see a lot of opportunities for this, but it's kind of like farming where it's like, it's very difficult to experiment with the amount of risk involved, right? It's just the VC path is such a standard path. It's almost like the old joke was like, you know, you don't get fired for buying an IBM. I think it was back in like the 80s, right? It's it's kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, if you go the VC route and none of your investments pan out, you probably won't be able to raise another fund, but it's not all that uncommon of a tale, right? But if you go a new route and it doesn't work out, you know, then you're really worried about failing. It seems right. Like. Right. And and similarly, for the entrepreneur, you know, if you go, oh, I raised some VC, you know, here's, here's how many millions of dollars I raised, then that's kind of like a badge of honor. And oh, right, well done you for raising that fund. Even if it didn't work out, well, that's sometimes what happens. Whereas if you took a different route, you're probably opening yourself up 
more to criticism. But there are people who, and you know, particularly things like um, high net worth individuals or family investment funds who are better placed to be able to take those risks themselves. And I think that's the perhaps the bit that's most interesting. The other piece which I want to mention at this point is that I think one of my conclusions is that we also need to diversify who is investing in these innovations. Because one of the things I see is that farmers themselves often aren't in a position to feel confident investing. And a lot of producer organizations will invest in the research but not the companies that then go on to commercialize that research. And it seems to me that they might also be in a position to experiment with some of these different ways of doing things, not least because one of the ways they can get a return on their investment is not just on the investment itself, but through those innovations, then driving productivity in their sector. So so I think there is scope for some some bold souls out there to, to try these things. Um, and, and part of bringing this to public attention with this podcast is trying to start that conversation about, could we try this? How could we try this? Where are the risks? How could we work through those? Because what we do know is that if we continue with what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. And actually, it would be good to get more diversity into the kind of companies that are being backed, the kind of solutions that are being brought to market with greater pace. Yeah. And, and you know, what we're talking about here to get back to your aligning interest comment earlier is, you know, aligning the interests of, of the investor with the interests of the entrepreneur with the interests of the customer, which in most cases in, in ag is going to be the producer. There's one interest I still see glaringly missing here, which is just like, you know, the environment and the labor aspect. I could see where certain technologies could be friendlier for the environment and for labor. But um, I know, I, I think it was Sarah Mock who actually said on your show about the ag tech success stories we point to really don't move the needle when it comes to either of those problems. Really, they're they're there to help the farm profitability problem. If we, if we look at something like, you know, the Climate Corp with, you know, which is kind of ironic given the name. But anyway, so how do we kind of bring those interests in and, and align them as well? Yeah, I don't think there are easy answers, but I'm sure that one of the reasons for this diversification is that it allows non-financial returns to be taken into account in, in a different way. Again, hashtag not all. We know there are lots of VCs who are really focused on the overlap, the intersection between financial returns and environmental impact. But there are also lots of companies out there who go, yeah, I could go route A, which would be better for the environment, but route B is going to deliver the financial return that my investors are looking for. So I'm being pushed down the route of route B. Or I could invest in this company, which would be really good for, you know, and I can see an exit for that. It's really good for my financial returns. Or I could invest in that company. Mm, not sure it's ever going to be a big enough market because they're focusing too much on environmental impact. So there is a bit of that tension in there. The other thing is taking a step back from investment models to thinking bigger picture. Part of the reason I kept going on about systems is recognizing that there's this whole interconnectedness between economic systems, social systems, environmental systems. And so thinking about investment in the context of that overall picture and how do you look at your returns as a whole is partly what impact investing is, is all about. 
how do you measure those non-economic returns? I suppose that's that's one of the problems that the whole investment community is facing. How do we measure those non-economic returns? And how do we factor those into what we're expecting from the companies that we invest in? But we do need this kind of radically different mindset, which is beginning to come through in some places, of thinking about rather than trying to just isolate the financial returns, thinking about the broader picture as a whole. Is that how regenerative uh, snuck its way into the the podcast? Is is in that context? Oh, do you know I was going to say that earlier, and I and I, I my train of thought went somewhere else. So you you kind of touched on it. I was a bit hesitant using the analogy of regenerative agriculture because I know there's a big bandwagon and there's a lot of greenwashing going on and all the rest of it. But it just seemed to me there was quite a strong parallel. So if we go back twenty years. Regenerative agriculture, this idea of working with nature and thinking about it as a whole system and not maximizing yield by using lots of artificial inputs, was a bit of a marginal, out there kind of way of thinking about things. You know, certainly no way to feed the world. But what's happened over time is that people have experimented with it and found ways of making it work, and it's given their businesses greater resilience. And over time, the impact on soils and ecosystems and so on has begun to be recognized. And consumer demands have started to say, well, actually, we're worried about the impact on soils and ecosystems. So we value those different ways of doing things and the impact that it has on ecological systems in addition. And that's why the bandwagon around regenerative agriculture has got moving. So the thing that struck me is that when we're talking about VC, it's a little bit like when we have monocropping with very large amounts of synthetic inputs. It's kind of analogous to the focus on one method of investing in businesses that has very large sums plowed into it, but focuses on a very small number of companies. And if we take a more diverse approach experiment with some different ways of doing things, but focus on ecosystem benefits as a whole, social benefits as a whole, that systems approach, then actually over time, we'll begin to develop the evidence that these things can work. And I believe that there is an opportunity for us to change the way that we do entrepreneurship so that it has wider benefits over the long term. Sure. Well, you did something that I love, which is you asked each of your guests to provide further resources for reading or listening uh, or watching uh, based on the information they shared. I'm curious of those resources. Are there any that stand out to you that you would encourage our audience? Obviously, the podcast, go listen to Innovating Ag Tech, but also any particular resources that you collected along the way that uh, stand out to you? Well, if the investment pieces resonate, there is a really good book by Orny Patton Power called Adventure Finance. That's a really good read. So that addresses the finance side. Uh, You mentioned Sarah Mock. I really enjoyed her book, Farm, Another F Word, a great book. It's not specific to some of these issues and ag tech that we've discussed today, but I think it sets that context of stepping back from what we think of normally when we're discussing agriculture and thinking about it in a wider sense. What else would I suggest? Oh, and The Third Plate by Dan Barber. I also really enjoyed that. Again, because I think it it does quite a good job in several places of connecting up how demand here changes production behaviors there, which has impacts on the environment further down the line, and thinking about how difficult it is 
to make those changes, but how important it is. So I actually, I enjoyed that book as well. So there's three resources. I'll make sure I include links to those books in the show notes, uh, kind of take a page out of Hannah's playbook there. And also be sure to listen to the Innovating Ag Tech podcast series, which I will link as well. And thank you so very much to Hannah Sr. for being our featured guest on today's show. Now, before we wrap up the episode, I've got a special bonus segment here for you with Merck Animal Health Ventures portfolio company and former podcast guest, Bethany Deshpande, co-founder and CEO of Soma Detect. You might remember Bethany's first appearance on the show this past fall in episode 278. There's also a special connection here as well, because Bethany actually appears on the Innovating Ag Tech podcast on, I believe, episodes four and episode six of Hannah's series. So this, this whole thing is kind of coming full circle and fitting together nicely. It's like, like we planned it that way. Uh, Soma Detect, to refresh your memory, has an inline system for monitoring health and reproduction of dairy cows. Bethany had some really compelling thoughts on how important it is for them and ag startups like them to have strategic investors to turn to. If you go back five or six years in terms of ag tech and this you know, tech investment and stuff, there were not a lot of people out there that both were writing checks for tech companies and had been on a farm. And I had spoken to a number of investors and had the experience of just running into folks where even if it, it's a really compelling story and it's a really interesting thing, they just didn't know the market. They didn't know about the dairy farm. They had never been on a farm. You know, I've explained to a number of VCs how milk is made and that milk comes when a calf is born. But you can only tell that story so many times before you're like, I think I should get someone in the room that's like milk to cow. Like that would really help me. So I'm not the one always telling those stories. And so I had set out to find investors, to, to find folks who wanted to put money into the company that knew the industry really well. Not just that this was a really cool tech doing new things, but also the impact that it could have for our farmers, which was has always been a really important aspect of this for me. And so from there, strategics make a ton of sense. They also you know, have access to market. In 2018, we participated in the Dairy Farmers of America, the DFA Accelerator. And the year following had done the Pure Science Accelerator run by Alltech out of Dublin. And so that put us in front of some of these really big strategic companies. And Somatech from the beginning has had a ton of interest from partners and from these bigger companies. And it was just a matter of if I can get all these folks in the room, then the pitch is just that much stronger. And I can actually tell my piece of the story, which has nothing to do with how milk is made. My piece of the story starts with monitoring and health and all those things. And as a result of the hard work by Bethany and her team to develop a great product and start to gain traction with real customers, they were able to include a few strategic investors on their cap table. So we have three strategic investors. So Dairy Farmers of America was the first strategic to put money into the company. We've had Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. They have an investment arm called Cavello, who's invested in the company. And then in our most recent round, had Merck Animal Health Ventures come in as well. And so it forms this really wonderful triad, different parts of the industry represented and investing in the tech that we're building alongside traditional VC investors. Almost all of our VCs have specific knowledge, interest, experience within agriculture, if not dairy. 
Catching up with founders like Bethany and Frank Wooten from Vince, who we profiled two episodes ago on episode 308, has really opened my eyes to how much of a game changer a strategic investor can be for an early stage company whose interests align. Before this started, I was mentioning to you, Tim, that I think building tech in agriculture, just it takes a lot of cash in. We know that. There's a huge opportunity in this space. And I think that strategics play a really key role there. And so we always keep a list at Soba Detective Life. What are our key blockers at this moment to where we want to go? And then, you know, it's easy to go from that list to who are the people or the companies that could help me address these blockers? And then when we're meeting with strategics, I remember at one point just making a slide that I would bring up at every single meeting of like, here's the ways you can help us. And that really helps, you know, the strategics want to be helpful. They want to be involved in building innovative things. Sometimes it's, they don't always know, okay, what is the best lever for me at this time? Or how can I be most, you know, helpful to this company? And so making that really crystal clear, I think has been important. And for us, that takes the form. So a paid pilot early on for a company is almost as impactful as paying customers, if not more so. Helping new tech get on more farms than diverse farms, that's hugely helpful as well. Wow, what an unexpected nugget of wisdom there to include at the very end of this episode. I think that one was probably worth the price of admission if you only took that away from today's episode. What are your blockers and who can help you break through them? Those are some really simple but profound questions right there. I think I'll probably go back to that one and revisit them often. Thank you so much to Bethany for the update on Soma Detect. Wish you and the team continued success. And thank you to Merck Animal Health Ventures for being both a great strategic investor and our presenting sponsor this quarter. That's it for today. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't ever take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.